0: I invite you to draw your sword and turn to John chapter 3. This morning we're going to plow in some familiar territory. But don't let your familiarity with the text breed complacency towards the text. So today I invite you to draw your sword, turn to John 3. I want to read in your hearing verses 16 to 18. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. John chapter 3, allow me to begin at verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he's not believed in the name God's one and only Son. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, preaching, understanding, and obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. It has been said that God's love for me should motivate God's love from me. In these three verses, we find a description of God's passion. Verse 16. We find a description of God's purpose, verse 17, and we find a description of God's plan, verse 18. First, let me talk to you about God's passion. John 3:16 is the most familiar verse in all the Bible. "For God so loved the world that He gave his one and only son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life." The location of that verse, John three sixteen, we find on billboards, on bumper stickers, and at baseball games. The God of the universe who created all things seen and unseen, visible and invisible, has a soft spot when it comes to you. God loves people. His passion is so enormously deep. God has a passion for you. The text simply says that God so loved the world. The word that's translated as world is cosmos. It means all the created order, but especially humanity. For humanity is the creme de la creme of creation. It is the crowning jewel of creation. And God has a soft spot when it comes to humanity. God simply loves people. Now the love of God, God's passion, It ought to astound us, not because the world is so big, but because the world is so bad. It should overwhelm us, not because of the breadth of God's love, but the depth of God's love. It should astound us, amaze us, overwhelm us, not because of the sheer volume of humanity, but because every person of humanity is completely and totally depraved and sinful. The love of God ought to literally blow our socks off. When we stop and consider God's passion for us, you know there's no good reason why God should love us. There's no good reason why God should love you. There is no good reason why God should love me. His love is not something that we are obligated to receive. There's no good reason why he should love us. There's no good reason why he ought to love us. There's no good reason why he is obligated to love us. He just simply loves us. Stop and consider this. That God loves a humanity that is capable of going into Norris Hall in a spring semester at Virginia Tech University and a gunman opened fire. When the smoke settles, some 32 people perish. And God so loved the world? God loves a world and a humanity that is capable of entering into Rob Elementary School at Uvalde, uh, Texas, and an 18-year-old gunman opened fire, and when he is finished, 19 elementary-aged children die and two of their teachers. And God so loved the world. God loves a humanity that is capable of having a sinner enter his church and kill, slaughter his saints, as it was done at St. Episcopal Uh, St. Stephen's Episcopal Church right here in Birmingham, Alabama, and God still loves the world. God loves a humanity that so devalues human life that millions of babies have been aborted over the years, all under the guise of women's health and convenient choice. And God loves the world. God still loves a humanity, a humanity that's capable of sexually assaulting other humans, one that is capable of entering into a verbal tirade against somebody, a humanity that is capable of stealing stuff that doesn't belong to us, of embezzling money that is not ours, and God still loves the world. God loves a world who has a humanity that's capable of being rude at rush hour, one that is being snarky at Christmas shopping. One who is able to blast those that we say we love the most. And God so loved the world. God loves a humanity that is rude and obnoxious. One that is vicious and vindictive. One that is just thoroughly evil and wicked. I'm not just talking about those people out there. I'm talking about these people in here. I'm not just talking about you. I'm talking about myself. Have you stopped to realize here recently just the depth of God's amazing love. God loves the world. He loves the entire cosmos. He loves you. And the depth of God's passion ought to overwhelm us. It's not so much that the world is so big. It's the fact that the world is so bad. It is not so much that God's love is so broad, but what's amazing is God's love is so deep. It is not the sheer volume of humanity that ought to amaze us. It's the fact that every person in humanity is totally and utterly depraved and God still loves us. John three sixteen just reminds us of the depth of God's passion. For God so loved us, the world that he gave his one and only son that's christmas isn't it in a succinct statement that's christmas john is not one to tell us a lot about the stable the shepherd and the stars i mean he he's not the one to to speak about those familiar parts and pieces of nativity oh but there are times when john will give us a statement and you think to yourself now that's christmas and here in John 3:16, we hear the story of Christmas. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes upon him shall not perish but have eternal life. That this gift of God in Jesus Christ is something that we must receive, we receive it by faith, by believing And when we believe upon him, we do not perish. The word perish means eternally separated from God, permanently separated from him. So we do not perish, but we have eternal life. Now that phrase, eternal life, is a really big deal in the Gospel of John. In fact, John speaks of it some 17 times. When you come to John chapter 3, you hear it for the first time. Here in John 3, 16, this is one of the first times that you ever hear this phrase, eternal life. Apparently, eternal life is not given to us at the moment of birth. But eternal life is given to us at the moment of rebirth. That eternal life is given to us at the moment when we accept and believe that Jesus is God's one and only son. and He was given as a gift for our salvation. All of this describes the overwhelming depth of God's love. You and I ought to have a daily dose of astonishment that God loves us. Are you flabbergasted that God loves you? I'm flabbergasted that God loves you. I'm flabbergasted that God loves me. I am shocked that God loves a sinful, wretched people like us. We ought to have a daily dose of astonishment that God loves us. The infinite, holy, magnificent God loves somebody like me and like you, and we are capable of so much sinfulness. This eternal life that God gives in Jesus Christ, this is what caught Nicodemus off guard. In John chapter 3, at the very beginning verses, we find that Nicodemus approaches Jesus under the cover of night. He says, "Uh, good teacher, rabbi, we know that you are from God, for no one can do the things you do apart from God. And Jesus gets right to the point, doesn't he? He says to Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he cannot enter my kingdom. Unless he is born again, he cannot receive this eternal life, this concept of being born again. It really blew the theological mind of Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. To say he's a Pharisee is to say he is a pure one in the days of the first century. He knows the Old Testament Torah and law. He taught the Torah with accuracy and with passion. I suspect that many people gathered to hear Nicodemus as he would teach and preach the Old Testament scriptures. Because I suspect he probably did it with conviction and passion. He took great pride in the fact that he was morally upright, that he was one who was extremely religious, that he not only knew the law of God, but he knew how to teach the word of God, the law of God, so that people can understand it. He is a Pharisee. In fact, Jesus will call him Israel's teacher. He's one of the best in the business. He is a teacher of the Old Testament. He is morally upright. He is gifted. He is knowledgeable. He knows the scripture, and he does his best by his own human power to live by the truth of God's word. Nicodemus comes to him under the cover of night. Now, in John's gospel, John oftentimes speaks in multiple layers, double meanings, and this is one of them. When he says that Nicodemus comes under the cover of night... Not only is that the literal surroundings of Nicodemus, it's dark, it's nighttime, but it also describes his spiritual condition. Nicodemus, spiritually speaking, is blind as a bat. He can't see spiritually. He's not awakened in his spirit to the real truth of God. He does not know the gospel of God. So he comes to Jesus under the cover of night and Jesus gets right at it doesn't he he gets right cuts right to the point unless a person is born again he cannot enter my kingdom Nicodemus was thinking of this in human ways wasn't he how can a man be born again he said how can a grown man enter his mother's womb a second time this is ridiculous Nicodemus. It's also gross, isn't it? I mean, what man would want to enter his mother's womb a second time and what mother would even think about letting her son enter a second? I mean, this is unimaginable. The first time was painful enough, wasn't it, mamas? I mean, that little bouncing baby boy, maybe eight pounds, nine pounds, 21 inches long. Now he's 6'1", 220. There ain't no way he's going to enter the mother's womb a second time. And Nicodemus says, how is this possible? This doesn't make any sense. And Jesus tells him, you're you're, you're thinking about this in a physical way. I, I mean a spiritual way. You must be born again. Jesus came to earth because of God's passion. With the coming of Jesus, there is an opportunity presented to all of humanity to be born again. When a person is born again, they receive eternal life. Eternal life is not given at the moment of your first birth, but eternal life is given at the moment of your second birth. When you and I come to John 3.16, we begin to see the depth of God's passion. John 3.17, you see the breadth of God's purpose for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him the coming of Jesus was not for further condemnation of humanity the coming of Jesus was for the glorious sheer salvation of humanity Jesus did not come to condemn us Jesus came to save us in fact We will read in the next verse that we are condemned already. If God wanted us to stay condemned, all he had to do was nothing. And we would remain in our condemnation. But because of his overwhelming passion for us, the purpose of sending Jesus was to bring us out of condemnation into glorious salvation in Jesus Christ. Now, the way the text is written, uh, the author does something very intentional to emphasize the purpose of God. In the ancient language of Greek, the typical structure of a sentence goes a verb followed by a subject followed by an object. That's a little bit odd for us. We don't speak in English. We don't write in that way. When we write English, we usually start with a subject followed by the verb followed by the object. But in the Greek language... All the power is in the verbs. So most sentences start with a verb, followed by the subject, followed by the object. If an author wants to emphasize a word that's not a verb, he will throw that word at the very beginning of the sentence. In a very dramatic way, when John comes to chapter 3, verse 17, the very first word of that ancient text is the word not Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. God did not send Jesus for condemnation. He sent Jesus for salvation. John wants the message to be loud and clear. Jesus did not come to wag his finger in your face and condemn you further. Jesus came to lift you out of a miry pit and set your feet upon the solid rock of Christ. Jesus came not to condemn you, but to save you. Not just you, but for all of humanity, anyone who would believe upon him Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost in a very poetic in a very powerful in a dramatic way when you come to John three seventeen, the author uses the only thing at his disposal he just throws the word not at the very beginning of the sentence it's as if He's underlying it. It's as if he is uh, italicizing it. It's as if he is bolding that word because he doesn't want you to miss it. It is not for condemnation that Jesus came. It is for salvation so that you might be saved. The greatest need of humanity is the gospel. The greatest problem that we have is our lostness, our condemnation. Our alienation from God. And God saw fit to remedy our greatest problem. So he sent Jesus for us. He sent Jesus to die on the cross in our place so that we might have salvation in him. The grave could not hold Jesus on the third day he burst forth from the tomb. So the purpose of God sending Jesus was not for condemnation but for salvation. I like what D.A. Carson said in his commentary on the Gospel of John. D.A. Carson said, There is nothing in us that's not defective. So we need a radical transformation. Did you catch that phrase? There is nothing in us that is not defective. We need a radical transformation. It's not You're pretty good. It's not, you're doing okay. It's not, you just need a divine tweaking every once in a while. It is not that, you know what, God just needs to come and replace some of your worn out parts. And when he replaces this part and that part and fine tunes this area and that area, you'll be okay. We are not okay. There is nothing in us that's not defective. In other words, everything about us is completely sinful. There's not anything in us that's not defective. And what we need is a radical transformation. The purpose of God sending Jesus into the world was for your radical transformation. It's not that you just need a tune-up. You need a complete overhaul. I mean, you and I, we need a radical transformation. This is what's needed for Nicodemus. This is also what's needed for the woman at the well. Don't let it escape your observation that here in John chapter 3, the author tells us the story of Nicodemus. Nicodemus is religiously upright. He's moral. You and I would describe him as a good guy. He, he's a good teacher. He's the kind of guy that we would want to teach our children and our students. We would want a person like Nicodemus to go to beach camp. We would want somebody like Nicodemus to to, to be around other people. We would think to ourselves, he's a pretty good guy. He's religious. He's moral. He's upright. And even somebody like Nicodemus needs a radical transformation. But John, in his brilliance, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, The very next chapter introduces us to the sexually sleazy Samaritan woman at the well remember, she goes to the well at high noon. Nobody else is around her. She goes there on purpose because she is a social outcast. She's marginalized by society. Nobody likes her. Nobody talks to her. Everybody talks about her. That's a Samaritan woman. In fact, when Jesus engages her in conversation, he shows her the depth of her depravity when he says, you've had five failed marriages, and this sixth guy that you're with, you're just hooking up and shacking up with him, aren't you? And we sit there and we read that and we think to ourselves Jesus what are you doing yet in that moment he wants to show her the depth of her depravity and just how parched her soul truly is now don't miss this John puts both these stories side by side John chapter 3 the story of Nicodemus John chapter 4 the story of the Samaritan woman and regardless of where you find yourself on the spectrum whether you find yourself as morally upright and religious as Nicodemus, or whether you find yourself, and let's just be honest, as sexually perverted and immoral as the Samaritan woman. Regardless of where you find yourself, on that spectrum of humanity and people, all people need a radical transformation. All people need a radical transformation. I don't care how good you think you are. I don't care how bad you think you are. All of us desperately need a radical transformation because there's nothing inside any of us that's not completely defective. Everything's broken. Everything's trashed. Everything's turned upside down and messed up. We need radical transformation in order to be declared innocent and righteous and perfect in the sight of God, both now and forevermore. So here comes John 3, 17. It is God's purpose in sending Jesus. The reason Jesus was sent was not to condemn us any further, but to save us from our sin. And the only way that we can be saved is through the accomplished work of Jesus Christ, And when we accept what Jesus has done for us, then we are born again. And when we're born again, we're given eternal life. Life that does not end. Eternal life can only be given to men and women, boys and girls who are born again. Nicodemus couldn't fathom this. How is it possible? And Jesus said, the reason I'm here is to give you new life. You, my friend, need to be remade, and you can only be remade in Christ. John 3.16 is God's passion. John 3.17 is God's purpose. But when you get to the end of verse 17, you have to ask yourself the question, well, then how do I get this eternal life? How am I born again? And that's where you come to John 3.18. It's God's plan. That God sent his son into the world, so that whoever believes upon him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he's not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Did you hear the equation? It's pretty much a one-word equation. It was mentioned three times in verse 18. Believe, believe, believe that the plan of salvation is belief the only way that a person goes from condemnation to salvation is by believing upon Jesus what are we supposed to believe about Jesus we got to believe who he is and we got to believe what he did we got to believe that he is God in the flesh. We've got to believe that he is God with flesh on, that according to Saint Augustine, that he is God who just sank himself down into our flesh. We've gotta believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for your sins and for mine, not for anything he did wrong, but for all the sins that you and I did wrong. We've said it many times before, and we'll say it a thousand times still, that Jesus on the cross, he literally took our hell upon himself so we and enjoy his heaven. Jesus died in our place. Jesus died as our substitute. He took the whipping that we deserved. He took every last drop of God's holy hostility. He died. They took his dead body off the cross, placed him into a borrowed grave, rolled a stone in front of it. And on the third day, Jesus got up again. The dead man began to walk. He began to breathe again. Jesus got out from the tomb. He's victorious over sin, death, hell, and the grave. Jesus is alive. The, The plan of salvation is belief upon the person and work of Christ. This is how a person is saved. This is how a person is born again. This is how everything is rewired and remade in your heart, in your mind, in your life. You believe upon Jesus. Now, in our passage of verse 18, whoever believes upon him it's not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he's not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Whoever doesn't believe is condemned. He's condemned already. Once again, just let me, let me hit this head on. A person is condemned not because they reject the gospel, A person is condemned already because of his or her sin nature. It's not rejection of the gospel that condemns somebody. If that was true, then you and I need to stop all evangelistic efforts. Because how cruel would it be for us to give somebody an opportunity to condemn themselves? No, here in verse 18... They're not condemning themselves if they reject the gospel. They're condemned already. They're condemned already. The only remedy from condemnation to salvation is Jesus Christ. This is why the Apostle Paul will write in Romans chapter 8, Therefore there is now no condemnation in Jesus Christ. If you're outside of Christ, you're condemned already. If you're inside of Christ, there is no condemnation for you. Because you, my friend, are completely, utterly, forever, fully, freely saved. You are saved because you've received God's plan of salvation. What is God's plan? Belief upon the one and only Son, Jesus. Now that statement fits in nicely to John's overall purpose, doesn't it? For John says at the end of his gospel, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. And by believing, you may have life in his name. Everything in John's gospel is pointing the reader to belief upon Jesus. Because John says this is so important. Heaven and hell hangs in the balance. Salvation and condemnation is hanging in the balance upon you believing that Jesus is God's son. And his death on the cross... Was for you in your place for all the price of your sin, past, present, and future. And the grave couldn't hold him from the third day he was raised from the dead. This is God's plan. It's the only plan for anybody to be saved. It's the plan that's given to Nicodemus. It's the plan that's given to the Samaritan woman. It's the plan that's given to me. It's the plan that's given to you. It's the plan that's been given to all people who have ever lived. This is the only plan that God has to save condemned sinners. This is the plan that's given to Nicodemus. Now, when he gets to the end of the conversation with Nicodemus, Uh, Nicodemus um, I don't think quite understands so Jesus in the very last couple of verses before our passage of John chapter 3 verse 16 Jesus gives Nicodemus a story he'd be very familiar with it's the story of it's recorded in Numbers chapter 21 in Numbers chapter 21 The story is told uh, that when God delivered the Israelites from their Egyptian captivity, they began to wander in the wilderness, and eventually, not too long, they began to grumble against God and against Moses, their leader. Now, God didn't take too kindly to his people grumbling against God or God's leader. So God sent poisonous snakes. Those venomous snakes slithered all throughout the camp. It was inevitable, but they would bite those Israelites, and the Israelites couldn't survive the poison very long. They would die rather quickly. The Israelites went to just a handful of funerals before they realized, hey, wait a minute, maybe, maybe this is our fault. So they went to Moses and they said, Moses, please go on our behalf before God and plead for mercy. So Moses goes to God and he asks for mercy, can you do something about these snakes? Literally people are dropping like flies. So God please can you be merciful? And God said to Moses, I want you to fashion or form a bronze serpent. I want you to put it on a wooden pole, lift it high in the air, and set it in the middle of camp. Anybody who's been snake bitten, if they look to that symbol and sign of healing that God provided, they'd be healed. Moses did what he was told. He fashioned a bronze serpent. He set it on a wooden pole, put it in the middle of camp. And he preached the sermon, right? He said, all of you who are snake bitten, all of you who have uh, poison pulsating through your veins, all you've got to do is look to the symbol and sign of healing that God has provided. If you just look to that serpent lifted high uh, there in the middle of camp, then you'll be healed. Moses offered the invitation. And guess what happened? According to the story of Numbers 21, there were some people that lifted their gaze, and they found grace to help them in their time of need. They lifted their eyes, and their bodies were healed. But there were some stubborn Israelites, and they refused to look, and they perished. They didn't just die physically, but in their sin, they died, and they were separated from God eternally. Jesus says to Nicodemus, "Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, high and exalted, and he will draw all kinds of men unto himself." This is the very last few lines before our familiar passage of John 3:16:17 and 18. Jesus gets to the end of it. He wants to close the deal for Nicodemus, and he simply says to him, all you've got to do is lift your gaze to the grace that God has given you. You do follow the analogy of Jesus, don't you? Jesus is saying to Nicodemus and to all who will believe, listen, in this camp called planet Earth, we are all snake-bitten. We're bitten by sin. We are still born at birth, Spiritually speaking, we are dead in our sins. The only hope we have is to look to the sign and symbol of healing and hope that God provides. His Son, our Savior, lifted high on a wooden pole in the form of a cross. He was lifted on Mount Calvary. And if we look to Christ crucified on Mount Calvary in faith, believing that Jesus is who he said he is and he does what he said he will do. If we look to him in faith, even though we are snake-bitten by sin, we will be forgiven. We will be born again. We will receive eternal life and we will never be separated from God and we will experience a radical transformation. See, Jesus was communicating all of that in this familiar story to Nicodemus, it's a story that Nicodemus would have taught, would have told, he would have understood it well. And when I get to the end of the conversation, I oftentimes wonder, how did Nicodemus respond? We don't know. in John 3, we don't know what he did. We don't know if he lifted his gaze and received the grace of God or if he kept looking and walking in darkness and turned around and walked away into the shadows, we just don't know. How did Nicodemus respond? I think that John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, knows that there are gonna be some inquisitive readers like me and inquisitive readers like you reading this fourth gospel. So in John's gospel, There are two other pictures of Nicodemus. The very next little glimpse of Nicodemus comes in chapter 7, verse 50. It's there that Nicodemus appears to speak up in defense of Jesus in the presence of his Pharisaical cronies. And the other Pharisees, they began to ridicule Nicodemus. They called him names. They said, you are a redneck Galilean. Are you just identifying with that Galilean? Now, friends, uh, if you are a believer in Christ and you start speaking up for Christ and if you start defending Christ in the marketplace, in the culture, in the classroom, on the sports team, people who reject Jesus, what do they typically do to you? They ridicule you, don't you? Don't they? They ridicule you by calling you names. So I come to a place like John chapter 7, verse 50, and I think to myself, while I don't know how Nicodemus responded in John chapter 3, it would appear in John chapter 7 there's a little bit more faithful fruit being developed in his life. Oh, but then any question is sealed in John chapter 19. In John chapter 19, I believe it's around verse 39 or so. John chapter 19, after the crucifixion of Jesus... It is Joseph of Arimathea who asks for the body of our Lord. And we are told by John that the man named Nicodemus, who visited Jesus earlier at night, he accompanied Joseph of Arimathea. And Nicodemus brought with him 75 pounds of a mixture of myrrh and alloy. Together they anointed the body of our Lord, they wrapped him in strips of linen, and they placed the dead body in a tomb. I read John chapter 19, and I think to myself, now wait a minute, any any questions I have, I think they've now been answered. Because Nicodemus, The man who came to him under the cover of night. The man who spoke up in his defense in front of his rowdy friends. Now, at the death of Jesus, he's saying, I don't care if anybody identifies me with the Lord. I don't care if anybody counts me as one who follows Jesus. I'll come to him right now in the middle of the day. I'll take his dead body and I'll give him proper burial. And as I read the text, it would appear to me that it's Nicodemus who foots the bill for 75 pounds of myrrh. Now, if it's true that the last thing that gets saved is your wallet, Then Nicodemus, by his actions, by his finances, by his giving, he pays for 75 pounds of myrrh. I don't know how much that costs, but that's a pretty penny. I mean, that's like a third or fourth grade boy, right? I mean, that's 75 pounds. 75 pounds of myrrh that Nicodemus put the bill for because he said, hey, I'm identifying with Christ. Because God's love for me must motivate God's love from me. God's love for me must motivate God's love from me. Are you listening to what I'm saying? I'm saying that God's love for me must motivate God's love from me. Nicodemus, in John chapter 3, understood and received and, and, and listened to God's love for him. And that love for him began to do a mighty work of radical transformation. I don't know exactly what point it happened, but by the time you get to John 7, by the time you get to John 19, by the time you get at the foot of the cross, I think salvation came to Nicodemus. Because Nicodemus said, this is the one who died for me to show me God's love. For God so loved the world. That he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And whoever believes upon the name of the Son is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he's not believed upon the name of God's one and only Son, that name that gives salvation, that name that enables us to be born again, that name that gives us eternal life, that name that radically transforms us. I think that's the story of Nicodemus. What about you? Are you amazed at the love of God? in your life? Are you amazed at the depth of love that God would love a sinner like you? Are you amazed, astonished in fact, that God would love you? Have you received it by faith? Have you received Jesus as Lord and Savior, believing that he died in your stead so that you may stand in his holiness? Have you received that eternal life? Have you been born again? Has your life been radically transformed from the inside out? And is your life continuing to be transformed from the inside out? I have no proof for this, but I can just have a holy hunch that as Nicodemus is preparing the body of Jesus for proper burial, maybe he's humming the tune, maybe he's singing the song. My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. For thee, all the follies of sin I resign. My gracious Redeemer, my Savior, art thou. If ever I've loved thee, my Jesus, it's now. You see, God's love for me must motivate God's love from me. I think we see this divine love on display in the life of Nicodemus. Do other people see divine love on display in your life? Listen, friend, if you're listening to my voice and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, today can be the day of salvation. Receive the gift of Christmas. All you have to do is admit to God that you are a sinner. Believe upon Jesus, who he is and what he did. And commit your life to him and allow him to be king and Lord. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ, today you can do so. We're going to sing a song and as soon as the first note is struck, won't you come? Won't you take one of the ministers by the hand and say, hey, I need that Jesus. I need to receive him because I am not a Christ follower until today. But as I look out over the crowd, I see a lot of people and you probably are Christ followers. Has God's love for you motivated God's love from you? And honestly, you'd probably say sometimes. Sometimes it does, but sometimes it doesn't. And maybe this morning you just need to come. You are a believer. Your salvation is sealed in Christ. But maybe you need to come and you need to say, Lord, I just need once again to thank you for your amazing love for me. And and help me to be motivated by that love, to show it to others. Because I'm gonna be around a lot of others this week. Other friends, other family members, other uncles, other aunts, other cousins. I'm gonna be around a lot of others. So help me to show love to others. Because you have shown love to me. Maybe you need to come and kneel here and pray. Maybe you need to come and join the church. Whatever it is, be obedient to the Lord. Let God's love for you motivate God's love from you this day and every day to the glory of God. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give this invitation. We pray that you will help us in this moment to really, truly take an inventory of our life. Have we been born again? Have we received by faith the gift of salvation in Jesus Christ? If we haven't, let today be the day of salvation. If we have, then Lord, please help us to be so motivated by your love that we show it to others. Lord, speak to us. Help us to respond. In Jesus' name, amen.